Welcome to the Raising Kids Together podcast. Raising Kids Together is a place where moms of all ages and stages come together from all over the world to walk this journey of mothering with one another. This podcast is just a small glimpse into the things that we are talking about in our daily Zoom meetings. I am your host, Tina Smith, and each week you can listen in as I and others share God's word and grow in our spiritual parenting. I am praying that you are blessed as you listen in. Well, good morning, ladies. I'm excited to be here with you. Um, Let's open in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you did not leave us helpless, but you gave us everything we need to be equipped to live the life that we live here on this earth. Father, I thank you for the prophecy of the revelation and how it can inform our lives today. I thank you that um, that it opens with Jesus and nothing but Jesus. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Even as we study this entire book, help us to remember that it's all about Jesus and that he is in complete control. Father, I thank you for the study that we're gonna do today of the seven churches of the Revelation. I just pray, God, that it would speak to our hearts. Help us to see that this is information that is not just about churches that existed long ago, but it's about churches that exist today. It's about our hearts and our lives. And so, Father, my prayer is that you would bring this alive to us. Change us, Lord. I pray that we would walk away from here changed. Lord, I ask you to speak through me. Father, um, hide me behind the cross. Don't let these ladies see me. Don't let them hear my words, Father, but help them hear your words. And it's in your name I ask. Amen. All right. So for those of you who have jumped on um, in just the last couple of minutes, if you did not get the handout, I linked it at the top of the chat and you can uh, you can go in and save it to your computer and print it off. Or you can be really cool like Jamie and put it on your iPad and have it electronically in front of you. So I'm super impressed with that, Jamie. All right. Um, so before we get into the next next section of our lesson, I would love for if you have a quick question about last week, if if as you've marinated in what we talked about last week um, with chapter one of Revelation, if you have a question, um, turn your microphone on and ask it. I can't prob- promise I'll have the answer, but we'll find someone who does. Um, if, if I don't. Questions or comments, either one. I think for me, just a comment, I loved how like the cookies were on the bottom shelf. It made it understandable and not scary. Good, good. That's that, that was one of my goals. Anybody else? All right. So let's get going. Um, We're going to look at Revelation chapters two and three today. And and actually, um, 
that is the seven churches of the revelation. Now that is a pretty big, hairy, audacious goal for us to finish all seven churches today. And I am under no illusion that we will do that. Um, I'm going to be happy if we get through three of the churches, uh, but, but that was my original goal. And so I want to start off today by going back and just reading Revelation chapter one. And as we begin to study these churches, you will see why we want to start by reminding ourselves what Revelation chapter one says. So let's let's read it. Um, I am reading from the New King James Version, and we'll start at Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's very important. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. You'll hear those phrases again in chapters two and three. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God and Father. To him be glimmering forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, that's been repeated twice in, in chapter one, so that's very important. The first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to uh, Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the boy that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen 
and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Amen. All right. So chapter one was all about Jesus. Chapters two and three are going to be about the seven churches, but they're very much going to still be about Jesus. And so let's be reminded of just a couple of things. In verses nine through 11 of chapter one, we are told what, where the seven churches are. And I'm going to share my screen real quickly. I showed you this last week, but I want you to see it again. Um, the seven churches were churches that are in modern day Turkey. What is today Turkey? At that point, it was Anatolia. And they are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, and you'll recall that John was a prisoner on Patmos, which lay just off the coast of Anatolia. And so his letter would have gone from Patmos by ship to Ephesus. That would have been the first stop on the travels of this letter. Now, you'll also hopefully remember that last week we said that these churches are kind of situated in a circle of sorts. And this was in all likelihood the uh, a postal route. So when mail landed in Ephesus, runners or messengers would take the mail on this circular route. And so if Ephesus would get the mail first, Laodicea would be the last to get the mail. Um, but that is how these letters were most likely distributed. So that is the audience for these letters. Um, the other thing I want us to be reminded of is in verses 20, uh, 17 through 20, um, Jesus said through John, uh, he introduces himself as the first and the last. Again, he's done that before. Um, and he is the one who lives, was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore. And then he says in verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And if you recall last week, we talked about that these are the three sections of the book of the Revelation. Chapter one was the things which you have seen. John saw this vision of Jesus. Chapters two and three are the things which are, the things that are currently going on in the churches there in, um, in my, what is modern day Turkey. The things which will take place after this, we will find as we move forward in chapters four through 22. So today we're going to begin looking at the things which are. Um, and it would be really easy for this to be a, um, a dry, boring study of these seven churches. But I submit to you that each of these churches has something to teach us in 2021. 
something about our church, something about our heart. And so I'm going to, as we go through each church, I'm going to stop and we're going, after we finish a church, we're going to talk about how it may apply to us today. Because if, if all we're do is, doing is reading this book just for the purpose of saying we read it, we might as well just grab a good fiction novel. We want to apply. And so that's what we're going to do today. So let's get started. Um, you're going to see some things that are common to each of these churches. And I hope you have your handout. I, um, I exceeded my technical skills when I created an Excel kind of spreadsheet uh, for you. And it has all, I know, Tina, I feel so accomplished. It has all the names of the churches across the top. And down the side, it has some of the characteristics that are common to each church. So we're going to be looking at the greetings, the commendations, the rebukes, and the promises to each church. And um, I, put, I typed in a lot of this information that I'm going to give you already in there, but there's also room for you to fill in some as we go. So let's start um, by looking at church number one, the church at Ephesus. Now, remember I said this would have been the first church that got John's letter first. Um, and so we're going to start by looking at the church at Ephesus. And I've given each of these churches fun names that I hope will help you remember them. And so the church at Ephesus is what I call the church that lost that love and feeling. And those of us who are older remember that song, right? The Righteous Brothers. Yeah, I'm not going to sing it. It would not be a blessing to you if I sang it. Um, so this is the church that lost that loving feeling. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and let's read about this church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now let's stop right there because each of these churches um, Jesus will open his address to each church by saying to the angel of the church of. And there is some, um, there are various ideas about what this meant, this word angel. Um, some people may believe it means a true angel, while other people believe it believe, means a messenger. Um, others also believe it means the pastor of the church. So we're not going to get bogged down in what that means. This was someone that was in authority over the church. So the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor and your patience and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, you know you're in trouble when there's a nevertheless. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. 
but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so what do we, what do we learn about the church at Ephesus? Now, this would have been the Ephesus church that was started by Paul and in all likelihood would have been the mother church for all of these other six churches. Um, we know that John spent the end of his life at, at Ephesus and would have written his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus. So this was a church that was very, very important to John. Now, I think so often when we think of cities and events and people in scripture, we don't, um, we don't personalize it. We don't get a good, a good picture of what it might have looked like to be in Ephesus. And I think it's really important for us to do that. So I think very often we think of cities in the Bible as small villages just because often scripture says they went from village to village or from town to town. Well, Ephesus was a true city. It, it probably had a population of around a quarter of a million people. So it was not a town. It was not a small area. Um, the main theater or the main stadium in Ephesus would have held around 25,000 people. So I want to show you, I'm going to share my screen and show you a, a picture um, of ancient Ephesus. Um, here is one picture of, I hope, I hope it's going to come up. Maybe not. All right. I don't know. Can you see that this? Here are some pictures from ancient Ephesus. Um, this picture right here, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but this would have been one of the main temples of the goddess Diana uh, that, that was uh, unearthed. So this was a major city in the area of Anatoly in that day. Um, the, um, this, the main god or goddess that would have been worshipped in Ephesus was interestingly enough, not our God. It was the goddess Diana. And um, the temple of Diana or the Artemisian was one of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world. So this was a big deal city. This was probably like the New York City of that time. Lots happened here. Um, I want to show you a picture of um, one of the images of the goddess Diana. And the, the worship of Diana was very, very prevalent in that day. And it was, um, it was not what we think of as worship. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was quite vile, actually. Let me read what one of my commentators says about um, about Ephesus and the worship of Diana or Artemis. Ephesus was the most 
was most famous as the center of worship of the goddess Diana. The temple of Diana was Ephesus's most prominent landmark because its inner shrine, the inside of the temple, was considered to be inviolable. It was considered that it could not be invaded in that inner shrine. Because of this, the temple served as one of the most important banks in the Mediterranean world. The temple and its surroundings also provided sanctuary for criminals. Now, how interesting is that? It's a bank and it's a, a sanctuary for criminals. In addition, the sale of items used in the worship of Diana provided an important source of income for the city. So one of the items that would have been for sale would have been an image or a statue that looked like this. The worship of Diana was vile. Her idol, this is her idol, was a gross, many-breasted monstrosity popularly believed to have fallen from heaven. The temple was attended by numerous priests, eunuchs, and slaves. Thousands of priestesses, who were little more than ritual prostitutes, played a major role in the worship of Artemis. The temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, and frenzied hysterical worshipers. Think about that. Think about what that might have been like. The, pro the philosopher Heraclitus was called the weeping philosopher because no one, he declared, could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So Ephesus was not a, um, a wonderful, godly place that, that we might associate with scripture. Um, Alicia, good question. So they initially worshiped God and then started worshiping the goddess. I don't know that we know how that all transpired, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, my guess is that the worship of the idols came first. Leanne, do you have any input on that? I think you're right. Yeah, they just started. It was all about making money. That's all they cared about. Money was their God. That's why you hear about, you know, Paul being in trouble. Uh, I mean, um, as, I'm drawing a blank. Paul being in trouble for um, destroying um, their um, way of making money. Yes. You know, and so that was the whole thing. They were um, all about money. They worship anything that brought them a lot of money. And this was their man-made God. It was their scheme to make money. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So <clears throat> let's look at the greeting that Jesus tells John to write for this church. The greeting says in verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we've heard that before. Look back at Revelation chapter one, verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Also, verse 16 of chapter one, 
we see this greeting comes straight out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, and then again, verse 20. So Jesus is connecting the description that John's, the, the vision that John saw for the churches of himself, that vision of himself. He is establishing himself as the authority over these churches. His holding of the seven stars in his right hand, look back at um, verse 20. Jesus said, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So whether it's the pastors or the, or the messengers of these seven churches, Jesus is saying, I have them in my right hand. I have control of them. This signifies Jesus' leadership over pastors, over leaders in the church. Um, they are his leaders, and no leader of any church is above the control of God. He has the authority to scrutinize and to address the church. So this, this if you have ever been in a church where there were um, less than wonderful things going on in the leadership, this should be a comfort to you to know that Jesus knows. He knows what's going on and he will deal with it in his time. I hope you've never been in a church like that. I have. And this, this concept was very comforting to me when I realized that. Okay, so let's move on. Um, Jesus' commendation. Uh, in his commendation, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Y'all, this sounds like a straight up wonderful church, doesn't it? They are doing all the right things. They are working. They are laboring. This was a serving church. Um, and the Greek word that Jesus used here for, for labor doesn't just mean that they were, you know, they were doing a little bit of work. This church was serving to the point of exhaustion. They were giving it all they had. They were a sacrificing church. They had patience. Um, they had patience under trial. The, the word, the Greek word that's used here for patience or perseverance means an endurance under trial. Um, Jesus said that they could not bear with those who were evil. Um, they had tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them liars. The Apostle Paul had warned the church about this very thing. Look back at 1 Timothy 1, and we'll see where, um, where Paul warned the church that people who claimed to be apostles but weren't would come forth. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, um, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So Paul was, was talking about Ephesus in, in particular. 
remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. So apparently we have good reason to believe that from the time of Paul, when the church of Ephesus was established to now, probably about 30 years, these false prophets and false teachers had infiltrated the church at Ephesus. Um, Paul also, uh, we won't go there, but in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul warned them about this again. There are many places in scripture where we are warned, be on guard about false prophets, about false teachers infiltrating the church. And not just the church, but the, um, the internet. There are plenty of them out there. Plenty of false prophets, false teachers out there. And we have to be very discerning and very wise. So this looked like a wonderful, serving, sacrificing, godly church. Um, and in verse 2 of chapter 2, when Jesus says, I know the word that he uses there for no does not mean that he has a casual passing knowledge of what's going on in the church. No, this is a word that means he has complete knowledge of what's going on in the church. And so he can call out the things that are not godly that are going on in the church. So let's look now at the rebuke. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. So Jamie knows very well what happens when a couple leaves their first love. That's when marital problems begin to happen. That's when eyes begin to stray. That's when things happen that are not for the marriage. And it's no different when this church and our churches and our hearts begin to leave our first love. The word that Jesus left here, uh, used here for left, you have left your first love, does not mean that the, the, that, um, the first love moved away from them. No, it means that they let go of their first love. This was an intentional opening the hands and letting go. Yes, abandoned. Good. I like that, Alicia. Abandoned their first love to let go of from oneself. And so um, if, if, you, if you remember back to a time um, of first love in a relationship, that was a time when you were just totally sold out and devoted to that person, that relationship. Um, they, they were up on a pedestal, they could do no wrong. You hung on every word that they said. And it's no different with Jesus and him being our first love. Um, Jesus was very clear 
in this rebuke that loving God is the first and most important thing that we as Christ followers can do. Um, and, and Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. He is echoing Deuteronomy 6, 5. Um, let's look really quickly at Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is part of what is called the Shema. And um, in it, God is giving the Israelites their greatest commandment. And he says in verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Okay, so that's God talking to Israel. Now, we might try to say, well, that was for then. That was Israel. All right, let's go to Matthew 22 and hear what Jesus has to say to us in verses 37 through 38. Actually, let's back up to verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. And if you have division, section divisions, in your Bible, at the top of that section, it says the greatest commandment in my Bible. So verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, and here he is quoting what we just read in Exodus. In Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Then the creator of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe says, ah, but. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so <clears throat> the church at Ephesus had left their first love. So a good question for you and I to ask ourselves is what does it look like for us to lose our first love? Let me give you some potential symptoms of losing your first love, whether it's in a relationship or your first love with Jesus. Um, and these are specific to your first love with Jesus, but I, I know we could, we could use them in a marital relationship. So the first one would be a loss of distinctive glowing joy of the Christian life. The Christian life becomes humdrum. Getting into the word doesn't excite you. Worship is dull and mechanical. There's just spiritual apathy. The second symptom might be a loss of ability to love other people. And that could be manifested as a critical spirit, a complainer. Anybody picking their toes up off the floor right now with me? Selective in friendships. Another symptom of losing your first love might be a loss of healthy perspective on ourselves. 
everything was about me rather than loving others, loving Jesus. So those are some of the symptoms of losing your first love. Um, and when we lose our first love, this can become a spiritual cancer because generally we don't just lose our first love and then fall back in, into it. We have to be deliberate. Just like in a marriage, if you have lost your first love, you have to be deliberate to work on that marriage, that, that feeling of love. And so this is what Jesus was calling out in the church in Ephesus. And the promise that he gave them was if they do not repent, he was going to remove their lampstand. Now, the lampstand re um, reflects the church. That's the church. Um, and so he said, if you do not repent, you're done. And in fact, today, the city of Ephesus is nothing more than a heap of stones. Um, in the um, New American Commentary, one of the commentaries I like to use, it says, neither history nor appropriate activity is sufficient to demand the continued blessings of God. Rather, the only motivation must be love for Christ. We cannot base our, our, um, our Christianity and our faith on what we do. It has to be our love for Christ. And we have to remember that God will do whatever he has to, to preserve the faith, even if that means taking a church out. He will do whatever he has to. Removal of a church does not endanger the kingdom of God at all, if it's part of God's plan or purpose. Another promise that he gave this church, if they overcame, they would eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So they needed to remember their first love and they needed to keep on remembering it. It's not good enough. And, and I think Jamie would second this. It's not good enough for me to tell my husband, Greg, I love you one time. We got married. I told you I loved you. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That doesn't generally work too well. Same with Jesus. We, it needs to be an active relationship where we are nurturing that first love. Um, so they needed to remember their first love. They needed to repent of their sin, of of failing to um, hold on to that first love. And then they needed to go back to what kept their first love alive. Yes, Tina, the battle for the mind. Absolutely, absolutely. So they needed to repeat the deeds of their first love. They needed to get deep into prayer. They needed to study the word. They needed to fellowship with each other. They needed to serve. They were already serving, but this might lead you to believe that the motivation for that service was, was not quite what it should have been. They needed to worship. 
They needed to return to the works and the things that they did when they were first Christians, when the church was first founded. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life in, with God in heaven. And we will look at the tree of life in a few weeks. I have no idea how many because we have gotten through one church this morning. Oops. <laughs> um, but we will look at the tree of life down the road. So, all right. Questions about the church at Ephesus. What does this speak to you? How do we see um, our world today relating to the church of Ephesus? I, I would like to just add a little something that, as you were saying, in Deuteronomy 6, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. And so in Revelation there. But he changes one. I'm so thankful that you joined us for this week's episode of the Raising Kids Together podcast. I hope you've been blessed by listening in on our Zoom room. We would love for you to join us. You can come when you can and come as you are. Simply go to RaisingKidsOnYourKnees.org and click the button on the front page to enter the Raising Kids Together Zoom room. We meet Monday through Friday at 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Have a great day.